you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey guys, welcome back. You know, I'm incredibly continually amazed at the talent and the experience and the passion of some of my guests that I continue to work with. And this episode is no exception. I'm speaking with Ali Gonzalez, and he is a 30-year career dedicated chef who has a passion for sustainability and holistic best practices in a restaurant. His mantra is, great ideas start at the table. In this episode, we're going to cover how sustainable, fresh, and all-natural foods can actually make money and be profitable in your restaurant, best practices, farm-to-table movement, how to motivate and retain you know, a great staff, which is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now. Over a 30-year career, Ali has run restaurants, hotels, catering companies. He's even cooked for the movie industry and mentored the U.S. Navy. So what a powerful episode this is. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and these are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences. Really excited today. I have a 30-year veteran career chef. His name is Mr. Ali Gonzalez. And not only is he a chef with uh, multiple stories I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him about, but he is also the creator of a company called Sustainable Culinary Solutions. And we're going to get it all into that and what that means. Welcome to the show today, Ali. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm really glad to have you here. Now, I usually start this show with backstory of my guest. And over a 30-year career, I know we're going to talk about your mentoring the U.S. Navy and all sorts of things, but how did you first get involved in restaurants, in cooking? What were your early inspirations? And then how did that then lead to you know, sustainable culinary solutions and your whole holistic approach to food and training staff and helping your clients succeed? Well, I started at the age of 13. Um, my mom was a housewife and she was always home and she finally went to work and, you know, we were used to having dinner by three or four o'clock. Um, and by her going to work, dinner wasn't ready. So I started cooking and, and that's where it really all started. And my mom wasn't a great cook at all. So, you know, she would boil broccoli for two or three hours and, and chicken soup was like chicken stock. So, um, I realized at the age of 13 and when I went to high school, I studied marine biology and I realized even back then that I was going to become a chef, you know? So I, I applied to um, San Francisco Culinary Academy and I moved right up there the minute I turned 18. Now, back when you think of 1990, um, there wasn't a lot of um, kids that got graduated from high school that went to culinary school. They were doctors and lawyers, people that were about 25, 28, or 30. They're, I was the only 18-year-old at the time to join culinary school. So did you develop an, an, a talent on your own before you went to culinary school? It sounds like you were dabbling in the kitchen. You were making food. Did you then become sort of the family cook and you were, create, you know, you were creating all the dishes and planning menus and saying, tonight we're going to have this and tomorrow we're going to have that. And people were really, your family were enjoying the food you were cooking. Did that happen? Not so much. I, I believe that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, okay. but I was trying, I was even trying to bake. Okay. I'm, I'm one of those very few chefs that do baking and cooking. It took me a while. I mean, I had a passion or love for it, but it, it clicked one day when I was, um, I went to work at the high Regency in Long Beach. And one day, everything that the chefs were teaching me and taught me in school, it just never really clicked that well. I mean, I could do it. I understood it. But one day I just woke up and every, just, everything just made sense. You were inspired. It was, yeah. it was inspired. And I understood, you know, technique more than recipes than anything. Before you went to culinary school, did you start sort of reading cookbooks and experimenting with recipes? I mean, you sound like, you know, there was some self-taught nature before you said, I'm going to culinary school and this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Yes. I, I mean, I had um, a couple of years of subscriptions of Bon Appetit. I, the magazines were big back then. And that's how I found the California Culinary Academy through them. Um, and you know, I, I did work at fast food, you know, so I understood inventories and pars and, and how to get food out in, in minutes. And, and back then fast food was cooked and made to order. 
you know, we had, you know, McDonald's had to grills, you know, we, you know, we, we grilled the burgers back then, you know, you toasted the buns. So I did learn, I learned how to execute and expedite. Uh, and that was helpful um, as I went into culinary school and, and started getting into the restaurant business. You know, that's absolutely true because so many people, young people that, you know, as, as you did get inspired and decide, hey, I really enjoy this, really do start out in the fast food industry and they get those basic jobs that are all systemized and they learn multiple aspects of how that business runs and then they then apply it to more finer dining situations or they go to culinary school or both and, and in your case, it sounds like you did both. Yes. And it's, it's funny because when I was in high school, um, I would start my shift and the managers were sent two or three of the employees home because <laughs> I learned how to work, you know, the, the, the grill so fast that they wouldn't need two or three of them. So they'd cut labor. So, but you know, it was all to my benefit and learning. And that's how much passion I had back then that I enjoyed it so much that I did not slow down. I didn't go to work to stand around. I actually, you know, had work that thick back then. And you traveled quite a bit, I would imagine, and you had multiple situations over a 30-year career and, and being an expert in multiple cuisines and being inspired and, and creating dishes and all of that. You worked in, a, am sure, a multitude of different restaurants and, and catering is part of your background. And you mentioned baking, right? Well, where did you yes. work after culinary school? Like what happened next? Well, <laughs> so much over 30 years. But I worked um, at a couple of hotels, about three hotels right up to culinary school. I moved back to um, Southern California, most of the Long Beach area. So whenever you had the Grand Prix, I worked in a fine dining restaurant um, at the height. And then in the morning, I worked at the bakery at the Sheraton. So I'd run back and forth, literally working 16 hours, two jobs at once. And then I joined the ACF. So there was times where I didn't sleep for 32 hours straight. I just worked on, you know, um, showpieces, um, um, culinary salons. I didn't stop. I mean, I had that passion. Then right mm. after that, I moved back to San Francisco. I worked seven days a week from 12 midnight to 8 o'clock in the morning in a Swedish bakery. And I worked at a hotel in Burlingame where, you know, from 10 to 7. So I would sleep two or three hours in between. It was really difficult. And then I, I met someone that had a small um, Southern Cajun and Creole restaurant where there was a Cajun chef that was from New Orleans and he wanted to move back to New Orleans. So they brought me up and trained me. Um, and I ran that for a couple of years. Then after that, I moved back to Southern California and that's when I got into some corporate dining and I actually started working at movie studios. So I worked for ABC, NBC, Paramount studios. And, you know, honestly, I, I really loved it. Um, but <clears throat> it was nonstop. Sometimes I go to work at midnight, three or four o'clock in the morning, depending on what they were shooting, uh, to make sure they were set up or there was food on the set. Um, the catering, um, special events, CBS would come in and do pilots. So it was nonstop. And, and as you can see, sometimes it was 30 days straight. Wow, that's incredible. Hours. That's incredible. Like, well, talk about what opportunities and how you became networked and all those different uh, positions with movie studios and major television studios and how that then led to further things. It, I'm always astounded at how one thing leads to another in this business. It, it's funny because before I arrived to some of these movie studios, ABC and Paramount, they were outsourcing a lot of their food. So if they were doing, uh, you know, a soap opera with um, the nurse's ball or, or somewhere in Russia, they would go and order Russian food somewhere else. Um, but with my vast cuisine knowledge that they would call me up and I said, no worries, I have this. Whatever cuisine you were looking for, you want a Greek and you want a cota lemonata, I would create it for you. If I didn't know it, I researched it and I brought it to them. They never, it was 100% done by me. If they needed a special event, they really wanted to shine, I would call my vendors up. So I made those um, connections even with my vendors. I partnered up with so many people. So if I needed something at the spur of the moment, they would run and jump and they would help me out to get me what I needed. If there were organic berries and I needed, you know, 40 cases within a day, they would go and source them through a farmer. So it started all the way back then in the early 90s where I was actually buying from local farms where nobody was buying from local farms. No chefs were, uh, even in Santa Cruz. I would go to these local farmers markets and I'd say, can I get two cases of tomatoes? They go, well, and, and a case of green beans, they were like, we don't even know what to charge for those. So this was back in, you know, you're right next to Watsonville and, and Gilroy where all the farmers would come out and I would select a lot of my produce that way. 
So it sounds like you are on the cutting edge of this whole farm to table movement that's been going on for so long. And, you know, working with local sustainable producers and that sort of shifted your influence a little bit from what you were used to with prior culinary jobs and certainly the fast food thing. You have what I would call a natural holistic approach to this business. And that then led to your current business, which is sustainable culinary solutions. So where did the passion for the holistic side, the natural side come from? Uh, You know what? I've always been one of those old fashioned chefs, although I I know what I believe in and um, what's taking place right now and what's trending. I also have to take a look at, okay, what's going to happen in the next 10 years? Where are we going? You know, how are we going to regulate some of this stuff? But then again, you know, uh, making stocks from scratch nowadays in restaurants is also unheard of. It's going away. Um, sous vide is coming in, is going to come in very strong, pre-bought sauces and bases and, and frozen soups. This is where it's going. But I have to give all the credit to these IT companies. They're the leaders. Okay. The chefs have been given a challenge out there, especially when you think of the Bay Area and how advanced they are in advancing, you know, farm to fork um, type menus. Um, but I took it a step further. Um, I worked for um, a company called Culinart in the past. And the IT companies that, that um, retained us basically gave us this challenge to come up with healthier, sustainable menus. And how are we going to approach this? I just didn't come up and type something up and come up with a solution. I would go to the farms. I would visit them. I would try to understand what was going on. I would really try to understand, you know, where the resources were coming from, from water waste. Uh, I just didn't come and say, here, here's a sustainable box. Let's recycle this. It's going to go into compost, um, you know, um, compostable waste here. I would go and find out if it really did. I would go to the compostable sites all the way in Gilroy and I'd walk through them and, and research them. So, and then I'd bring the correct vendors in to give me the real truth. Because when you're talking about recycling, you're talking about a conveyor belt that goes 40 miles an hour and you have plastics from one to seven. So it's not really getting recycled. Where are they going? So I want to give the truth. I don't want to just lie. I don't want to buy a, a product from my client and it's coming from China. You know, we're, and we're talking about local just because it's compostable and you don't want to spend the extra five cents per plate because it comes from Sacramento. But again, what is the right thing to do? So doing the right research, just not just going to say, this is what I think. And that's how the passion became and drove me because these clients, they basically, you know, said, here's the plan. Here's what we want. How can we achieve this? And although they had a sustainable team on there, I would come back because they didn't even know. And I'd come back with the right answers. That's a great story. Okay, let's turn to the restaurant industry as most of us know it. Um, I'm going to ask you what you believe is broken with the industry today. Well, there's several things. Um, Number one, um, labor costs. Yes, for sure. For sure. You're looking at labor. You can't just say, okay, it's $15 an hour increasing. It's a challenge because if you can't find the right talent, um, you can hire at $15 because everyone else is hiring a, a, a prep cook or somebody that doesn't even know how to cook anymore. They're not going to culinary school. Culinary schools are dying. Um, they're going broke and bankrupt. So when you look at it, not only the labor cost at 15 you have to pay that cook 18 if you're going to retain some decent talent. Um, and then you're looking at workman's comp. You're looking at all the taxes and payroll taxes. So it just adds up. Yes, it does. So you really have to manage your staff and make sure there's no overtime and how you're going to manage your menu to meet that rotation so that we're not standing around and wasting prep time. Um, And that's where this from scratch menus that you really want to have and quality, uh, they kind of go out the door because you're looking for shortcuts to cut labor. So that's, that's kind of broken. And then now with social media and marketing, if you're really old school and you've owned a restaurant for, you know, 20, 30 years and you don't understand social media and you're not hiring somebody, your restaurant's going to go bankrupt. You really need the boost. You need the help. You need a professional to come in and help you understand the social media world. Let's talk about sustainable culinary solutions now. You, your services, I was, I was researching you, of course, and I've been on your website, and I find that very impressive, of course, but your, your services are all-encompassing. But what would you say your company's primary specialties are? I, I believe in training. 
I believe in front of the house, back of the house training. As I say, we no longer have um, waiters and waitresses, it's servers. And first class service is kind of gone out the door. I mean, I, I go so as, as far as old school where I still stick ice cubes in the urinals. You know, I, I make sure that you come to my restaurant and you're gonna have first class, but I'm also gonna break it down in the back of the house. I want production sheets. I want recipes, I want the food costed out, and I want to train the staff. I want them all to be a part of the team to understand. You know, when you, when you see these first-class restaurants out there, these five-star, four-star restaurants, it's all because of the training. Definitely. It's, everyone's on the same page. You know, right now it seems that the world um, is all relying on HR. Um, half of my job, you know, I would say three-fourths of my job in the past has always been dealing with HR issues. And, you know, so when the, when the food focus should have came on, when the food focus was there, we, we lost it um, because we're dealing with HR issues and employee issues and problems. Um, but if you train the right staff, you communicate with them, you have a five or 10 minute briefing um, every day, they feel like they're a part of a team. They're going to go and take that extra effort. And it doesn't become about the money. They're proud to be working at a restaurant. They're proud to be a part of that team where there's no drama. And that's what the training is all about, is making sure you put best practices in place. I've always been a huge believer in that. Um, I ran restaurants for 20 years. In fact, uh, I've been out of the business for years. Five months ago, we bought another restaurant. And again, we're starting from scratch, building that what we call the dream team. And it all begins with training, daily training, as you mentioned. And whether that's a half an hour, 20 minutes, three to five minutes, if you focus on that every single day, it's not just about sales. It's about service. It's about hospitality. It's about bringing those three components together. So I'm totally on board with what you're saying there. Correct. When you uh, establish a relationship with a new client, where do you begin? Do you sort of visit the, the restaurant if they're a local client or do you interview them via phone and, and what types of things or what types of challenges do you solve and how does the whole process begin? Well, the whole process, number one, will be with a phone call and you really have to listen to your client, really try to understand where they're going, what is it they really want, um, and don't go in there and try to sell them something else. Um, you know, uh, in our industry, we, we tend not to listen, especially executive chefs with strong personalities. They want to go in there and just tell them this is how it is. But, you know, maybe this client has a dream and this is the way they want to do it. I'm not going to sit there and argue and, and tell them that they're doing it wrong. I want to show him better, more useful ways of doing it, but also give him a, a, an analysis, uh, whether it's inventory turns are off, um, maybe the menu consistency. I want to see where his talent is. Sometimes somebody that isn't producing, they may have talent somewhere else that they don't belong there or they just need a little training or communication. You can't always say that you have bad employees unless you really get to know them and understand and open your eyes and not go in with your eyes you know, shut. You have to be able to open and analyze them and watch them. Um, a lot of restaurant consultants, they go out there, they stay out there for a day or two, they walk around, they make their notes, they hand it in and walk away. No, I'm here to help you get to the next level. Sometimes it's ripping apart your storeroom, reorganize everything, taking everything out of the boxes so that you know when, every time you walk in there what you have, how, how many boxes of cornstarch you have on the shelf. So even when you're um, doing inventory, you, you already calculate in your head your losses and what's, what's rotating, what's not rotating. Also, the staff, you know, who works well together, who's not working well together. You have to really understand the restaurant and how it's flowing and how it's gelling because right away, you don't even know it, especially with your purchasing on, on top of that. You could be buying the wrong, the wrong contracts. If you're chopping your bell peppers every day and you're, you're buying you know, choice and you're not buying choppers, you're buying layered tomatoes and you're not buying large loose, well, guess what? You're losing money. You're losing $5 a case and $5 times you know how many times you buy that, maybe 50 times a year plus all the other produce. That adds up to thousands of dollars. You could dump a hundred thousand dollars in the trash really easy. You know, one of the some of the other biggest losses is misclassifying employees under workman's comp. It could cost you thousands of dollars. So, you know, it's it's being able to go through your entire PL, having an understanding, your HR practices, protecting you, making sure you have liability insurance. Everyone's so crazy now. I want to make sure I protect your business. 
Wow, you sound like a tremendous resource. Let's get back to training because that is such a near and dear to my heart uh, topic. And you have specific training philosophies, but there's so much to hiring and training and development and recognition and rewards and then motivating and inspiring and, and making sure that you keep people and retain them as opposed to losing them. Because I heard a while back, you know, this is a really alarming statistic, but they say that the average tenure of a new restaurant employee is just four months. And every time you get that person, you hire that person, you get them up to speed the job, they quit, you, you know, it doesn't work out for whatever reason, and then you have to replace them. It costs the restaurant somewhere between three and $4,000 in lost time, productivity, you know, all that sort of thing, wages, and then, you know, your, your time alone, it's crazy. And this is the time when, I don't need to tell you this, but every restaurant across the country is struggling with this labor shortage, low unemployment, and people in other industries that can afford to pay more than restaurants can, and just the fickle nature of the business where people come and go unless you can make a difference to keep that person, motivate them, show them that there's a path forward and new opportunities, right? What would you say your philosophies are with all of that? I mean, that is one of the biggest struggles that restaurant owners face today. I felt that a lot of restaurant owners do not document things, do not mm -hmm. have best practices in place. Um, many of them say they do, but you look at it, it's just a typed up piece of paper or scratch paper. Right. When they're ordering, they're ordering off a piece of scratch paper. You better have order guides in place so you can record what you're buying. But most of all, I believe in production sheets. I believe in recipes. I believe in having it all written down. If you have a production sheet, let's just say for your pantry, and you list all the fresh produce, all the different dressings, the different types of croutons and stuff you're going to mm -hmm. put together, and the different greens, forget about the recipes. But you know that every day you need two pounds of everything here, ready, prepped, ordered. So this goes not only for your inventory when you're ordering, plus at the end of the month when you're counting inventory, but anyone that walks into that restaurant knows at that station, they need to at least gather or prep those items. So you may not have the qualified cook if someone quits on the spot, but you know that at least that stuff is there and then somebody else can jump in, whether it's a manager or a sous chef or someone else can jump in. So it's making sure that you have the practices in place you should not be held hostage by your employees, but you should see, make sure that everyone is well-trained. Um, on top of that, listen, it, you, you don't have the time to sit there and shred carrots in a robot that's wasting time. Buy it pre-done. That's okay. As long as I'm putting fresh product on my menu, I have to know, you know, what am I going to balance here in that restaurant to save labor dollars? So buying shredded red cabbage, buying shredded carrots, okay, yes, it may cost me a little bit more, but in the long run, I'm not wasting overtime labor and prepping labor. Mm -hmm. um, and again, those, those recipes and production sheets are going to keep everything consistent. It's going to make sure everyone has an understanding what to do. And that's going to save the turnover. On top of that, if your cooks feel like they're learning something and they're getting value from their job, they're going to stay. You're going to have less turnover. And you don't go and slap their hand every time something goes wrong. Listen, I've learned over the years by burning things on the stove. You know, I've burned so many different things and ruined so many things in the kitchen. That's how I learn. These employees are learning. If you, if you train them the proper way, you don't yell at them. A lot of managers go in there, they yell, chefs yell and tell them, hey, you yes. ruined this. It's bad. But they don't give them the solution. They don't explain it to them. They don't say, hey, wait a minute. This is a convection oven. If you're trying to bake cookies at 350 because the recipe says so, uh, convection oven is going to cook it a lot faster. And, and probably burn them faster. So why don't you lower it down to 325 and for five less minutes and explain to them, you know, a gas oven is different from a convection. If they really have the knowledge behind it, they're going to have a better understanding and they're going to say, well, okay, I, I understand. Because a lot of times they think they're doing it right. And this is what the last chef told me. This is what the last cook told me. And you really have to have that training. And, and again, like that 15, 10 minute briefing at the beginning of the day, Hey, listen, yesterday you guys did a great job. We, we had record sales and you pat them on the back and say, let's do it again. Um, but in the meantime, that we only had a couple mistakes. We had a couple plates that we had to send back. Um, what's your solution? You get asked them for the solution and they'll step it right up. Yes, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. You know, I panicked and they're going to give you the answers, you know, and you're not beating them down. And that's the key to running a successful operation and training them and keeping the turnover. I'm glad you mentioned that. 
if I go way back in time when I was in high school, I had a couple of early jobs working in kitchens. I worked at a country club. I started off as a dishwasher, was promoted to bartender pretty quickly, but we still worked a lot of banquets. And the chef there had such a calm demeanor. He worked with all these 15 and 16-year-old kids that knew nothing about it. And he had this sort of training bent where he was more than happy to show somebody how to correctly chop vegetables and how to serve things and how to clean plates and make sure the presentation was there. He had infinite patience and he was a career military chef before he worked at this country club. And then I worked in other places where, you know, the chef would yell and scream and, you know, intimidate the wait staff and there's everything in between. But I totally believe that the approach to the job, you can't just have great culinary talents and skills, but you also need to be a people person in this business to make things work properly. Correct. But I mean, when you look at it 30, 40 years ago, the chefs would come and scream and yell at you and, and probably stab you with the knife. Your hands were in your pocket. And yeah, it, was yeah. a di- it was a different time, a different era. And you respected them and you worked harder for them. And they would I agree. You cry every day. But that doesn't fly anymore. You can't. You know, you'd be in a lawsuit, of course. So, I mean, it, it's, it's about treating everyone mm-hmm. equally and, and making sure they have an understanding. Your, your business will survive. You're, 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 you're not going to have that turnover. As I said, again, you're going to keep and retain some great talent. Let's talk about the balance between quality and sustainability and buying local products and still having a reasonable food cost versus buying from, you know, a broadline supplier that does tremendous volume across the country and their prices technically should be lower and you negotiate purchasing and all that sort of thing. How do you strike that balance between charging a reasonable amount based on your concept, but still buying a sustainable product that's locally grown that there really are very few, if any, economies of scale to that grower? Well, I want everyone to understand what does sustainable mean? I mean, it's a broad term and everyone likes to use it and say, well, we can't afford it. Well, why don't you make a list of pros and cons? Here's all my pros and my meats and and everything that I'm going to buy. You should do a market basket. Compare it. So before you say no and I can't afford it, do the research. Do the market research. Are you buying locally? Is it about locally? I'm always careful about locally. I love locally but I'm also thinking about the good earth. You know, it, it used to be every winter we'd get a lot of our fruit and produce from South America. And when you think about those economies, I want to make sure that they're surviving. So that's another thing that I do my research on is making sure the, the entire earth is well taken care of because those people that are working for a dollar a day or $5 a day in other countries yes, yes. don't want to take food out of their mouths. They have families too. Mm-hmm. So again, when it comes down to sustainable, local, fresh, produce yes we buy from the farms you know when you think about the la or new york produce markets um we're not buying from them much anymore but it's also keeping um everyone honest where we're not buying um, random produce from the back of a truck not knowing where it's coming from so i make sure that we talk to our vendors we go to the farms where we're researching it um what's fresh what's healthy um you know how are they growing it Um, That's where even I go back to the, uh, I make sure that I go to the warehouses where they sell the produce Um, because I want to see that it's not just sustainable, but their HACCP practices are in place. You know, um, their their wet bar um, box is, you know, nice and clean. Everything is off the floor, Um, you know, so there's a lot of things to consider. So that's how you find out what's sustainable, what isn't sustainable. You know, even a, a meat packaging company, okay, um, you know, are they using um, the right ink, the right packaging? You know, where are they getting it from? You know, a lot of times they, they buy this packaging. You don't know where it's coming from. It brings in uh, environments and, and bugs and insects, and you, you want to make sure that stuff isn't getting into your produce also. So it's, it's doing the research. I've always, if every company I've ever worked for for the last 30 years, um, even when I was just a basic cook, um, even the producers, the, these purchasing people would take me with them to go visit the meat markets. They would take me with them to go visit the pros markets. Uh, when I ran the culinary school and some of these other corporate dining accounts, I took cooks with me. I took chefs with me. Three o'clock in the morning, I made them get up. I, they met me at the LA pros market and we walked it for hours. I wanted them to understand the produce, where it comes from. It's not just bell peppers, celery, carrots, and onions. You have to see the seasons. 
When is gold bar zucchini coming out? Summer squash. I want you to understand the different types of melons, the different um, gooseberries that you can buy at different. So you can be a little bit more creative in, in you know, your seasonal. So sustainability there is keeping a menu open where it's fresh seasonal vegetables and you're not mixing cauliflower, broccoli and zucchini year round, you know? So it, there's a balance. Your, your website has a tagline, or your company, I should say, has a tagline, and that's great ideas start at the table. Can you explain further? Well, <clears throat> when you're eating, I mean, sometimes you're thinking about the flavors, and you close your eyes sometimes, and you're dreaming about food. You watch the Food Network, you're dreaming about food. You see mags. Everywhere you go, it's about food, okay? So sometimes when you're with people, you're inspiring them with the the food that you're talking about you're at the table and you're you're sometimes you're on your iphone and and you know these food delivery programs come up everything is about food these days so you can inspire people they can inspire you they give you great ideas and you know what i've always learned just because i've been in the industry for 30 years i went to culinary school doesn't mean that somebody that barely has two or three years doesn't have something to say or something creative i watched uh, a young lady that worked for me back in, you know, I would say about 28 years ago, I was running a, a Memphis Minis in Santa Cruz, a restaurant, and she was my prep cook. And all she came in to prep, but when she was prepping, I would watch cooks stand there and fill a bucket of water and just stand there and then go and pour it into the stock pot. As she was filling that bucket of water, she put another bucket in. As she walked over, she emptied the bucket and the other bucket was filled. So she didn't waste water. She didn't stand there. She didn't waste time. And I watched her. So little things like that, mm -hmm. a lot of cooks and chefs bring to the table. You just have to keep your eyes open. Everyone has something to offer. And that's why I say great ideas start at the table. I like that. That's great. You have a mindset, operate intentionally. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, I, th I think, honestly, it, it's about taking pride, understanding what you want in life. Mm -hmm. And you put your heart and soul into a restaurant. Many of these cooks put 30 years and they're just line cooks. So, you know, you really have to uh, be a giver in this industry. Don't take. You have something to give. You teach it. You know, you help others. Givers gain. So it's, it's, sometimes it's at a cost, you know, and that's why you retain my services, um, you know, because I'm going to help you save thousands of dollars. Uh, so don't be afraid not to go and retain somebody who can help you out, but also give back, give back to your staff. You operate with the intention of growing and doing better. And, and as, as I always say, it's not about increasing your revenue. It's about increasing profits because you could have a bad program in place, the wrong vendors too high labor and more revenue that you're bringing in is costing you more is bringing, increasing your costs. So we want to sustain your business. Make sure it's the right product, the right vendors, the right contracts, right practices in place to increase your profits. Because just because you make $2 million a year doesn't mean you're going to make any money. Okay? So you could probably make one, year, one million a year and probably make more money than you could on $2 million if you're operating properly. Well, you're making an excellent point right now. Um, we're going to talk about menu development. But where I'm going with this is I, I work with clients as well. And one of the things that I've been specializing in lately is sort of analyzing a menu if it's been costed out properly and then determining the volume of sales and figuring out what the spread or the, you know, the profit difference is amongst items in each categories. And it's staggering to me that in so many cases, lower profit items are taking sales away from high profit items. And that when over the course of six months or a year, when you multiply the volume of sales on all those items and see how much money certain restaurants are leaving on the table, because when they design the menu, they didn't try to provide three things, variety, appeal to the customer, and most of all, profit. And what they don't realize is if you design properly and if you approach this with a profitability mindset, it's possible to design a menu where everything contributes a similar profit in each category. And that way you really don't care what you're selling as long as you don't, you don't have a waste or a theft or a spoilage problem. Uh, have you seen that in any of, uh, you know, working with your clients or how do you approach menu development? Menu development is an art. You cannot just go in there and write a menu. 
Many chefs, many managers cannot write menus. Many cooks can't. They have great ideas, and I respect ideas. Right. Okay. Right. And great, a great recipe does not make a chef. I'm sorry. There's no secret recipe out there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why any recipe you want for me, I don't care. It's my famous flourless chocolate cake. You can have it because that does, that's not going to make me, um, balancing it, balancing it. So your inventory turns are correct, making sure that it's sustainable, that anyone can make it. It can come out and be executed on time. Um, and, and then freshness and quality, you know, Definitely. one thing that I, I, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of cooks and chefs over the years. And they all come to the table with their resume and they go, yeah, I worked this place. I did this and I've worked all these places. I go, great. So what do you love about this industry? What do you like? I mean, what inspires you? Well, I would cook this recipe. I'd cook a chicken. And I'm like, you're not explaining it. Tell me what was so great about making that chicken dish. How did you make it? And they wouldn't give me, they wouldn't talk food, should I say. You should be able to talk food. Yes. I always make sure that I blanch my vegetables. Why? Because I want to keep the vitamins and nutrients. I want to balance it when I cook them. You know, when cooking green vegetables, it has chlorophyll. I don't want to steam it because it comes up and comes back down. That's why you get, you know, black vegetables. So, you know, broccoli will last you a day or two. Or when you're on the line, if you're serving a buffet or a catering, it's going to hold itself and it's not going to turn black on you. So I want them to talk food. I want them to tell me, pound out the chicken breast. So it cooks evenly and flour it and season the flour. And when you sear it, it's going to lock in all those juices. So I want them to explain that to me. So that's where all this technique and the love and passion of food comes from. And, and that's where it comes back down to in, in balancing your menu. Because when you're writing it, you're talking about pan sauteed um, chicken breast. And when you're writing that menu, you may have a favorite because you love chicken piccata. Listen. Adding fresh tomatoes to that chicken piccata, some fresh chopped thyme, and some toasted pine nuts just brings it to another level. Different textures, different flavor. The same old-fashioned dish. So you don't always have to go with the classic, even though you like a classic, but you can jazz it up a little bit. And that's where the creative side of menu development and writing. And then if you do it properly, where you can add the seasonal vegetables to it, where you're not doing the same old vegetables over and over again, and they're just chopping them up and putting them in a big tub, and sauteing no, I want to make sure they're evenly blanched off where I'm not getting cauliflower cooked at a certain temperature versus um, broccoli and zucchini and it becoming mushy and, and, and watery. I want to taste as fresh as can be. And again, if you're somebody might put herbs in their vegetables, keep them natural, keep them fresh. Because if you're going to season your meat or your proteins or your seafood with something with a nice, you know, basil cream sauce, whatever you're putting on it, why are you going to go and put perfume on vegetables? They should be natural and cook, you know, fresh as can be. But when you're writing that menu, you're explaining those details. You know, you're, you're, you want to get people's mouth watering saying, I don't know what to order. Can you help me? It all sounds delicious. The same thing with your desserts. Don't just put flour on chocolate cake. You know, say, talk about the chef a little bit, put a little bio on the bottom of that menu, but talk about the flour chocolate cake and it's served with fresh raspberries and a raspberry coolie. You know, you, you really want to talk about the food and explain it more to the customer. And I like putting logos on um, gluten-free, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. vegan, non-dairy. This way the customer already knows when they walk in and they can read that. And there's a lot less hassle with, I can't have nuts, I can't have this. You know, that used to be sort of an emerging trend, you know, the gluten-free thing before there really was, uh, you know, this big celiac problem where people could literally get sick or die if they ate something that had gluten in it. Um, Vegan, I mean, there's so many different approaches to cuisine, but are you seeing more and more people experimenting with that even though they don't have to, whether it's gluten-free or dairy-free or just because restaurants have put such an emphasis on it in the past, you know, five, ten years? I'll tell you right now, it was about 12 years ago, I, I was managing an IT company and, you know, we'd have this humongous cafe. So you're looking at a multi-million dollar cafe and it's not a real cafe, it's almost a restaurant. Sure. Yeah, and, and we had vegetarian items at every station where you could order or substitute. And they would still complain the vegetarians. It wasn't enough options for them, enough options. So I created this whole entire vegetarian station. And the funny thing is, 85% of the people that ate there at the vegetarian station were not even vegetarians. 
Mm-hmm. So if you put it in front of them and you make it just as delicious, yeah. you can make a, yeah. an enchilada stack with black beans and roasted corn and a tomatillo salsa with, with crispy fried, um, you know, sweet potato hay on that and toasted papitas, non-vegetarians. That's something you want to still eat because you're adding freshness and quality to it. You're not just saying, okay, vegetarians, well, you're going to get a pasta dish or let me just saute some vegetables for you or give you eggplant parmesan. It's, it's always the same go-tos with most because they don't want to deal with vegetarians. Now, guess what? It's not an inconvenience. It's a real thing. It's a, it's a real life um, experience and it's happening out there. If you don't add that um, vegan um, plant-based to your menus, you're going to lose a lot of customers. That's a good point. It's obvious to me. I mean, the passion is certainly coming through in this discussion. And there are a lot of great restaurants in this country. There are a lot of great chefs. There's a lot of foodie cities. There's an emphasis on food. But when I think about European countries, how it's really part of the culture, whether it's France or Italy or even Greece for that matter, where literally food brings people together to the table as a family or with friends or whatnot. And it is such a big part of their day. It's not just because they have to eat. It's not because we love to eat or we like to taste new foods. It's really part of the culture. And it sounds like you're, you're changing that, that mindset here in this country, one client at a time, even in this podcast, just sharing that and making food really part of the culture. You know, because there's so many different cuisines. I mean, America is the melting pot. We have all those cuisines, but the lifestyle thing doesn't seem to be as strong to me as it is in those European countries. I don't know if you agree with that or not. No, I, I agree with it. I in, in culture, 100%. You learn so much from different cultures in the industry. And the funny mm-hmm. thing, the uh, funny thing is that you're mentioning all this is that I traveled all over the United States. If I wanted Italian food, I'd go to New York, Jersey, deep Jersey, okay? Um, I discovered Colombian food in, in um, Long Island um, a couple of years ago, and the Colombian empanadas are amazing, okay? And they make them with cornmeal you know, instead of uh, pie dough. And, and it's just, you know, the, the ingredients everywhere you go with the culture, you can taste it. You can taste the, the background. And when I wanted barbecue, it's Dallas, Texas. And, you know, of course. and I'd go out there, I'd yeah. spend months and months, I'd buy a smoker and I'd, you know, 16 hours on the brisket, I'd rub it and I'd keep doing it until I got it right. And the mopping sauce on that. And then the South, do you really understand the South and how the French um, in the 1800s came over and influenced the, the Southerners? But it's, it was such a poor, uh, in Louisiana and Georgia, New Orleans, it was such a or area that everything yeah. was off the lay of the land. So it was bell peppers and onions and tomatoes and crawfish and catfish um, ponds. But you see, they would cook everything. They didn't use wine and alcohol. They used the bones. They didn't, you didn't buy chicken breast. They roasted those chickens, took the bones from there. They peeled the shrimp and they took and the crawfish and tails and they used the stalks and they deglazed that way. And everything was so naturally, you know, gumbo was cooked for hours and hours, red beans and rice, hours and hours. You understood the cuisine. So, you know, when you go to Texas, when you go to New York, you understand the culture. When you go get a deli sandwich in New York and a pizza, you understand why it's so great, you know. Um, And everyone has it, you know. When you go to the Bay Area, you you see the different types of, um, you know, foods, cuisines like um, Thai um, in San Francisco and and Vietnamese and Mm -hmm. um, and clay pots. I mean, you you find the most amazing, unique restaurants out there. And and I'm I'm proud to be in this industry and and I've been able to travel all over the place and taste so many different types of cuisines and understand them. Because I close my eyes and, I, and I, I watch how they cook. I'm in North Carolina. It's all about pork. You know, everything's pork. I watch the pig races and, and the smoking contests. So it, it's, it's such a treat. You're making us all hungry, Allie, by the way. I mean, all these, all these different cuisines, I can visualize it. I can taste it. I can smell it. I'm in a kitchen. It's like, oh, my gosh, I, I feel like barbecue tonight or that Louisiana thing you were talking about and the French influences and Cajun. Is Cajun and Creole two different things? Are there any overlaps there? I was always curious about that. Yes, there is. It's the way they cook. Um, and and it's, it's funny because um, Cubion is a sauce. And, yeah. and Cubion is Creole. It's a Creole sauce, really. Uh-huh. And 
but it's spelled court bouillon and court bouillon is a poaching stock in our industry. So they would take some of our culinary words. So what the French taught them and they made different things, the French influenced the cream and the butter. So if you have crawfish etouffee, you know, um, which is Cajun, you would have that smothered in butter with crawfish tails and it's delicious over rice. But, you know, the Creole thing is, you know, there's a lot of sugar and broth and peppers and onions and it's just braised, um, you know, the shrimp Creole and, and it's just amazing stuff. And they'll use rooster and oysters and, and turtle. So, you know, again, it's, it's a lay of the land. It's the way it's cooked. And a lot of it was braised you know, when it comes down to the Creole and the cage is a little bit more spicier and, and you know, um, the Cajun cakes and, and just the blackening and, you know, um, but you can mix them together. Um, so when I ran my Southern restaurant, it was Cajun, Creole, and Southern. Nice. Pan-fried cornbread and wooden bacon. So I wanted to give you an experience. Oh, so I love minute, cornbread. The minute you walked into the, our restaurant, yeah. fresh pan-fried cornbread with a roasted garlic butter that you can spread on it and sit there and get the cuisine. Because you walked in, you wanted to feel like you were in New Orleans, and that's what you felt. Well, that's, that is so interesting because the three most important things in any food service establishment are the food, the service, and the ambiance. All are important, of course, but they all complement one another. You know, you're not going to get a great experience if, you know, the food is good, but the service is average or the atmosphere isn't comfortable, but the food is good. You know, all those things combine. But if you can bring the food together with the concept and the theme of the restaurant with great ambiance and then train the staff so well that the service is exemplary, I mean, there's a grand slam home run. You know, that's that's the trifecta right there if you can accomplish that. Correct. And, and that's that's where I pride in. You know, if I ever open up a Southern restaurant, I'm going to have stamped ceiling tiles painted and violet. I'm going to have antiques all over the place. And you're going to hear Albert King on the radio. And you're going to smell that garlic and that sausage, that andouille sausage, mm. the minute you walk in the door. So you have to be able to tell a story before you even sit down and eat. And that's what a lot of restaurants lack because they're bagging groceries these days. And that's where I'm here to help you. No more bagging groceries. Let's bring back those old techniques. Now you can bring back into the culinary trends, which we need to, okay? We have to do non-dairy. We're putting corn starch um, starch and soups instead of roux so that they are gluten-free. Listen, we'll make those adjustments. But I'm here to help you bring in that ambience and, and bring back your vision of what you really want to build and develop here. That's fantastic. So your website is sustainableculinarysolutions.com. I encourage the audience to go check out the website and uh, reach out to Allie. Uh, is there anything we missed in this conversation that you'd like to talk about? Um, let's see. I've done it all. I've learned with catering and, and I learned the hard way. Um, you know, when I, I was catering for a hundred guests, I learned how to portion control. I, I learned very fast that a hundred guests with a hundred appetizers doesn't mean a hundred each, you know, and how to clean up afterwards, how to make sure that I minimize my cleanup costs. So that, that also helped me in the industry. So training on that is key when you have a um, training development. And um, we were going to talk all about the, um, I did work for the Navy for a while. Yes, tell us about that. That was an amazing, amazing experience because I was never in the service. But when I came off that boat, I'll tell you right now, or, or that battleship, should I say, I was amazed at their practices. I was amazed at the way um, they worked. They would get up at three or four o'clock in the morning, the cooks, and they wouldn't go to bed till 11 at night. They'd work straight through the day and they would go and do um, some training practices and come back in and cook. Uh, but the cooks on there weren't well-trained and the, uh, you know, the Navy didn't have the money to, f- um, you know, to train them. So I had a local um, operation down the street in San Diego and they would come a couple days a week to train. But in order for me to understand where I needed to go with, with the cooks, I went and spend a, a few weeks on the battleship with them um, to learn their practices. Now they had walk-ins full of fresh food. A lot of it went in the trash. It was because they didn't know how. They didn't know how to minimize um, their waste and to cook with that fresh food. So they were used to opening up packs, packages and boxes. So my job there was to analyze that, mm-hmm. to come up with a program so they can utilize that, fruit, that fresh produce pro, uh, product and get it out without having to waste their time because you know, they had a lot of people to feed on that ship. So again, I found a new, uh, a newfound respect for the Navy and the people that work on it because they do work hard. They did have some amazing, amazing 
recycling and and um, composting programs in place on the ship. You know, they'd even melt all the plastic down to almost flat frisbees. They had these machines in there, and you know, and how they um, recycled and composted all their food on the ship. So I was amazed that they were already you know light years ahead of that, uh, way before anyone had to tell them to do it or it was mandatory. So it was an amazing experience, I would have to say. Yeah, I've always been amazed whether it's the Navy or whether it's cruise ships, how how the chefs and the cooks can prepare, you know, sometimes thousands, no, thousands, literally thousands of meals a day, day after day after day, and keep everybody fed and everybody happy. And and the practices, the best practices and the efficiencies have to play into that to such an nth degree. You know, it's it's such an important detail. Yes, it's not easy. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Ali. It's been a great uh, experience having you on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. I really appreciate you coming in. And we're going to uh, share your URL for your website, of course, in our show notes. And I thank the audience for listening in. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and we will see you all in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. As you know, so many of my episodes are focused on service and on building the dream team and about profitability. And those three things are crucial in any successful restaurant operation. So today's episode was no exception. We did talk about motivating and retaining your labor. You know, in a tight labor market, the labor shortage is something everyone's struggling with. We talked about profitability and how to maintain those profits, even if you do buy the freshest local ingredients from sustainable local farms. You know, while I'm on the topic of profitability... I know you may have heard this before, but really simply, your menu, great ideas really start with the menu because the menu is your biggest marketing tool. It's something every customer sees and so many menus I see out there just aren't profitable. And you don't want to be leaving money on the table when your kitchen crew are working just as hard putting out lower profit items as high and you're paying them just as much. You might as well be maximizing your menu profits. So why don't you reach out to me? I've formulated this template that very simply and accurately calculates the amount of potential profit that is lost and left on the table because lower profit items in each category, appetizers, entrees, and desserts, are taking sales away from the higher profit items. I'd love to discuss this with you if you think this is something that would benefit your restaurant. So reach out to me, Roger, R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. Or if you have a great guest idea or a topic that you'd really like me to cover in an upcoming episode, also please reach out. And once again, we appreciate your listening. And if you would, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd certainly appreciate that as well because, again, it will help other owners, managers, and hospitality professionals find us. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.